Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The House has voted in favor of a procedural move to start debate on long-term spending bills for the federal government. But NPR's Giles Snyder tells us the House procedural vote will not stave off a looming federal government shutdown late Saturday night. The vote to advance funding for the Departments of Defense, State, Homeland Security, and Agriculture may be a win for Speaker McCarthy, but those four bills would do little to hold off a possible shutdown this weekend. McCarthy says the House will likely vote on a stopgap measure on Friday to keep the government open, and the Senate has also advanced a short-term funding bill, but some House hardliners say they will not support any stopgap measure. NPR's Giles Snyder reporting. The Supreme Court has refused to hear an appeal from the state of Alabama challenging a lower court's redrawing of congressional district maps. Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett reports the lower court had originally called for the creation of a second black majority voting district, and the Alabama legislature refused to comply. The Republican-dominated legislature redrew the maps with no second black majority voting district, and the court rejected them. Now the court will choose a map that is in line with their ruling. Joe Reed Sr., head of the Alabama Democratic Conference, celebrates the news, but also says the state repeatedly disregards African-American voters. It's so unfortunate that the state of Alabama just simply will not do right by black people. The outcome is being closely watched in other southern states, where plaintiffs have also claimed similar district maps are diluting the black vote. For NPR News, I'm Kyle Gassett in Montgomery, Alabama. A New York judge has ruled former President Donald Trump, two of his sons, and some of his business associates have committed fraud. NPR's Jacqueline Diaz reports this stems from a civil lawsuit filed by New York State Attorney General Letitia James. As part of the judge's order, Trump, his eldest sons, and others will have their business licenses canceled in New York. This will likely make it nearly impossible to do business in the state. In the decision released Tuesday, the judge agreed with James's arguments. Trump and his Trump Organization executive team committed fraud. They did this by inflating their net worth to complete deals and get more financing. The judge decided on some of the major issues in this case, but there are a few other claims yet to be decided on. The trial set to begin Monday in this case will still go on. Jacqueline Diaz, NPR News. Embattled New Jersey Senator Robert Menendez will appear in federal court today in New York to face corruption charges. The Democrat says he is innocent and the prosecution is politically and racially motivated. But a number of U.S. Senate Democrats are urging Menendez to resign. That includes fellow New Jersey Democratic Senator Cory Booker. You're listening to NPR News. From Washington. I'm Rupa Shinoy. This is WBUR in Boston. As you heard, federal lawmakers have until Saturday to reach a deal on a budget to avert a government shutdown. Here in Massachusetts, the state is starting to prepare in case that does happen. Here's Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll. So putting together the list of ways that we could be impacted and wanting to make sure we're doing all that we can. But the reality is we hope it doesn't happen. A federal shutdown has impacts in Massachusetts, and it's at a time we can't afford to be slowing down on anything. Driscoll says the impacts could be far-reaching. She says it could slow down recovery efforts from this summer's flooding, as well as closed national parks and historical sites. She says federal workers in the state would also be affected. 
State lawmakers and healthcare industry leaders are praising the decision by the feds to make Massachusetts one of the hubs of a new federal health agency. It's called the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, or ERPA-H. WBUR's Priyanka Dale-McCluskey reports it'll invest in treatments for cancer, Alzheimer's, and other diseases. ARPA-H is designed to streamline and speed up scientific research. Secretary of Economic Development Yvonne Howe says Massachusetts beat out several other states competing to be hubs of the new federal agency. This is like thinking about trying to put a man on the moon, something that you thought was impossible, like curing cancer or getting drugs to market in days and weeks, not years and years. This is a very ambitious, inspirational project, and it's going to be headquartered here. The effort will be based in Kendall Square in Cambridge. Federal officials have not said how much funding will come to Massachusetts or exactly how many new jobs will be based here. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dale-McCleskey. The MBTA says problems with the tracks on the new Green Line extension are slowing down trains. That section of line just opened last December. Trains will run at just three miles per hour along more than a dozen sections of the line. T officials tell the Boston Globe recent inspections revealed tracks in those areas are too close together. MBTA General Manager Phil Ang will be on WBR's Radio Boston later this morning. Listen at 11 to hear what he has to say about the issue. A former FBI agent turned associate to mob boss Whitey Bulger will not go back to prison. Instead, John Connolly will remain on supervised medical leave from a Florida prison. He was released to hospice care for cancer treatment in 2021. Connolly was convicted of helping Bulger orchestrate the 1982 murder of a Florida businessman. It's 7.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Fall Experience. Featuring four dynamic ballets on stage October 5th to the 15th, tickets at bostonballet.org. And AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings, and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. The Red Sox fell to the Tampa Bay Rays 9-7 last night at Fenway Park. The teams will wrap up their two-game series tonight. It'll be the last game at Fenway for the Sox this year. The Bruins lost to the Sabres 4-1 last night in an exhibition game in Buffalo. The Bees will host the Philadelphia Flyers on Friday. Mostly sunny today and in the mid-60s. Partly cloudy overnight. It'll be near 50. Mostly sunny again tomorrow and in the upper 60s. Right now, it's 47 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include Jarl and Pamela Moe, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. In a world where often only those who can afford a subscription are the ones with access to the most credible, high-quality news sources, WBUR is available to anyone, anywhere, anytime, at no cost. But we can't take our future for granted. Giving monthly is the key to keeping WBUR strong. So help us get to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. This is Morning Edition on WBUR, where we just started our fall fundraiser. And as a listener, you are always an important part of what we do here at WBUR. This is when we remind you that you actually make what you hear every morning possible. People who listen like you make up the largest share of our funding. We're trying to sustain our newsroom even as other news outlets dwindle and collapse. 
That news you depend on every day from us comes at a huge and constant expense. But the solution is pretty easy. It's pretty much you. And when you give now, with a dollar-for-dollar match in place, you'll double your impact for us. In other words, you will help us twice as much as when we don't have a match like this in place. And think about what you get back when you take action and do what you can to have as much impact as you can. The number is 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and in the studio this morning is Radio Boston host Tiziana Deary. It is so lovely to see you, Tiziana. I love it when you're here. Thank you, Rupa. It's such a privilege to be here with you with the Morning Edition listeners. You know, I'm just thinking about a couple of the stories we've already heard this morning. Will you or will you not have your uh, COVID shot canceled? Mm -hmm. Will there or will there not be a government shutdown at the end of the week? Mm -hmm. We are living in a time of great uncertainty. What's beautiful about monthly givers is you, when you become one of the monthly givers to WBUR, you eliminate uncertainty for us and how well we can bring you the news and information you're relying on right this minute because you're listening to us every morning when you listen to Rupa, every day when you rely on WBUR to bring you the news and information you need. Be one of the 2,500 new givers to WBUR, new monthly givers. That is the goal of this fall fundraiser. Or add to your monthly gift if you're one of those awesome people who already gives monthly to us and take advantage of this dollar for dollar match. Giving us a little bit of certainty in this uncertain world makes a world of difference to us in being able to do what we're committed to doing for you. And there are so many listeners who do it because of what they rely on. There's a lot of Boston flowing through WBUR. The programming, you know, local personalities, everything's very grounded here in Boston, it seems. I think we're incredibly lucky to be in a city that has such a rich public radio program. And I think WBUR specifically does a great job of connecting people not just to national news and international news, but local. It makes me want to support WBUR. Support your home for public radio. Give monthly at WBUR.org. You turn to WBUR to help you understand the world and the most important issues around us. We are grateful to play that role for you, and we will always be here every morning right here for you. We're asking you to give $10, $20, or $30 a month right now, and to give it right now to get in on a match. If you already give, like Tiziana said, we are so grateful. We think about you every day, and we do the best we can with what you give us. Maybe think about adding on a few more dollars. We will be even more grateful, and we will use it wisely to create the news you depend on. This is a really challenging environment for media. We need your help to keep this work going. We need you to call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Okay, so I'm going to tease something I'm looking forward to telling you more about in, in more fundraising breaks this morning. We have this super cool sweepstakes for the next couple of days. Enter now. You can uh, enter this sweepstakes five days, four nights in London, courtesy of CBT Travel, you and one other person, to dine at four of Yotam Adelangi's restaurants. He's a food columnist for The Times, The Guardian. You'll be modeling a trip that senior correspondent Deb Becker mm -hmm. and a former WBUR employee took. If you weren't a foodie before, you will be after this one. Mm -hmm. But enter now. You get the dollar-for-dollar dollar match. You enter the sweepstakes. You support WBUR. 
It's so cool. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Spalding Rehabilitation. For expert care, turn to Spalding. With three inpatient hospitals, a skilled nursing facility, and outpatient centers across Eastern Mass, Spalding is a world leader in advanced rehab treatment and research. U.S. News ranks Spalding number two for rehab care in the country. SpaldingRehab.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. We're getting pretty close to a partial government shutdown. Congress is supposed to approve routine appropriations, bills to set federal spending levels, by September 30th, which is this weekend. The Senate did that. The House failed. The Senate is now starting on a short-term funding measure, which would give Congress a few weeks to work out the long-term measure, but they need a few days to finish that. The House is trying to vote this week on a short-term measure that would differ from the one in the Senate. We have heard what a shutdown would mean for social programs if Congress doesn't get its job done, but what about the military? White House National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby is with us on the line. Admiral Kirby, welcome back. Thank you very much, Steve. Good to be with you this morning. I'm just thinking about government shutdowns. Non-essential federal workers are sent home. Essential workers keep working. I would think the military sounds pretty pretty essential. Does this affect them at all? It, well, it certainly won't affect their duties. Uh, the active duty military will still show up uh, to work. They'll still do all the missions that they do every day to protect and defend the country. But they would not get paid. Uh, under a shutdown. Uh, and that is going to have a very, very significant effect on them and their families. Look, you don't join the military to get rich. Uh, certainly the pay is good, but uh, but they need those paychecks. Uh, they've got rent, they've got mortgages, they've got groceries. Uh, and so they, they'll still show up to do the work of the country and, and do the nation's bidding, but, uh, but it, they won't get paid. The other thing, Steve, to remember is that the civil servants that support the Department of Defense, there are, are hundreds of thousands of them. They, they, many of them will be, in fact, probably most of them, will be furloughed, which means they're not only getting not, they're not getting paid, but they're not showing up for work. And they do vital, critical work on a daily basis to keep the department going. Uh, I'm just thinking about the paycheck. Uh, some people will know you drew a military paycheck once upon a time, and I'm just even thinking about the timing. You get paid every two weeks, every month? How does it work? It's every two weeks, yes. Um, oh. Right. And then I'm thinking about past government shutdowns. We've learned from them that even if the federal government is only shut down for a few hours or a couple of days. Doesn't that screw up procedures and processes such that somebody's paycheck, two-week paycheck, might be delayed? It could happen, yes. In fact, uh, even a short-term delay could result in uh, delays, uh, processing delays of the actual paychecks once the government's back open again. So you, you'll have a little bit, I went through this myself, you, you'll have a little bit of a backlog before those paychecks start showing up again in your bank account. Uh, and again, when you're you know, when, you, you know, you're living out in town, you got rent, you got power bills, you got groceries to buy. I mean, it has a, it has an effect and it not only will have an effect on their checkbooks, but it'll have an effect on their morale and welfare. We like to say that, at least in the Navy, you know, you recruit a sailor, but you retain, you, you keep uh, a family. And those families will be helping make those decisions about whether they, you know, want to keep you know, keep serving, you know, with, with this kind of disruptive disruption. Okay, so uh, you can see this coming. Uh, it's not certain, I guess, but it seems more and more likely. What kinds of contingency plans are being put in place at the White House where you work? Well, the first thing we're doing is making sure that the workforce understands what uh, what could happen here, uh, which is we're doing it across the, the government, informing the workforce, letting them know 
making sure that people can make the appropriate plans in case they are affected by it. Uh, we're also, you know, urging Congress to do its job. Obviously, we're staying in touch with uh, with Congress throughout this process, but it really is between the speaker uh, and this small group of very extreme Republicans in the House uh, of Representatives that are holding this up. So while we're working with Congress, certainly uh, there's a limit uh, to what we can do and we can affect, given that this is really existing inside, particularly the House of Representatives. Is the military already struggling a little bit with politics here, given that hundreds of military promotions and appointments have been held up by Senator Tommy Tuberville in a dispute over abortion rules? It's certainly not helping matters to, to, to have more than 300 uh, senior officers now also freezing. So imagine you're one of these officers that you, you, you can't move on to your next duty assignment. You're paying out of pocket now for expenses that you thought you'd be able to cover because you were moving to the next assignment. And now you might not get a paycheck. So it's absolutely going to, uh, I think, just just make the, the, the morale and the welfare for our families and for our people even that much worse. OK, bottom line, the effect on national security. What's a, what's a word you would use, Does, a verb you would use? Does this harm national security? Does it degrade national security? Does a shutdown? What, what does a shutdown do to American national security of, say, a few it, days? It actually it actually could harm national security, depending on how long it goes on, Steve, particularly when it comes to the like the business of moving the Department of Defense forward, like contract management. So many of these civilians work in contract management, contracts for maintenance, logistics, procurement of new of new capabilities. That that, that contract, uh, those contract, that contract work would be would be delayed. John Kirby of the White House. Thanks so much. You bet. My pleasure. Seven candidates will take the stage tonight for the second Republican presidential primary debate in California. Former President Trump will skip it. Depending on the poll you consult, he's either far ahead of his rivals or even farther ahead. NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez is with us now to give us a preview of what we might see tonight and also the bigger picture of how things stand in the 2024 race so far. Good morning, Franco. Good morning, Michelle. So as we said, this is the second debate that Trump is skipping. Is there any way in which this debate might be different from the last one in Wisconsin? Well, I mean, like before, there's going to be less attention on the debate without the front runner, without Trump. But a key difference could be the audience. Republican strategist Sean Walsh told me that the fact that the debate is being held at Ronald Reagan's presidential library means attendees will be made up of more mainstream Republicans. I don't think we'll have the circus audience that we had at the last debate that Fox News held. I think that Chris Christie was going to make some very important points concerning former President Trump, and he was shouted down and did not have the opportunity to do that. So do you think that these criticisms about Trump that uh, Sean Walsh alluded to might actually be heard tonight on the debate stage? Do you think that, that other candidates, perhaps apart from Chris Christie, might have more to say? They may. I mean, they're running out of time to distinguish themselves. And this crowd may be more amenable to hearing them out. I mean, of course, at that debate in Wisconsin, it wasn't just Governor Christie who was speaking out. Basically, anyone who spoke in any fashion against Trump was booed. And these other candidates, though, they don't want Trump to be the main topic either. But this could give them more of a chance to shine when they're outside of Trump's shadow. All right. Speaking of Trump again, he's going to Michigan instead to speak with auto workers, but he's going to a non-union shop. And of course, he's going a day after President Biden was there speaking to workers on the picket line, which was widely viewed as an historic event. So what's the calculation for Trump and how he's handling that visit? 
Well, I mean, you know, Biden has called himself the most pro-union president, but Trump has been, you know, successful at courting blue-collar workers. So he's going directly there to speak with them, as you said, but at a non-union plant, which is outside Detroit. I was speaking with former House Speaker Newt Gingrich. He told me that Biden may have the support of union leadership, but not the men and women on the assembly line. Trump will do better with working class voters than Biden will. That's the great irony. The establishment is for the old order. So the UAW leadership is for the old order. Their membership is probably going to vote for Trump. I mean, the big picture here is it just shows how important this group of voters are. Michigan voters helped both Trump and Biden win the White House, Trump in 2016, obviously, and Biden in 2020. And the union vote was a big part of that for both of them. Okay, very briefly then, uh, Biden told union workers that they deserve more than they're getting from the auto companies. What will Trump's message be? You know, he's going to attack Biden's economic policies, especially electric vehicles. Trump's likely to talk about how he's better suited to protect the industry and therefore their auto workers' jobs. But union leaders really, really are opposed to Trump and they are discouraging their members from attending. That is NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez. Franco, thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Brooks Robinson is a name familiar to baseball fans. He spent his entire career, 23 seasons in Major League Baseball, playing for the Baltimore Orioles. When the team yesterday announced his death at the age of 86, they paid tribute to him with a simple nickname, Mr. Oriole. Robinson was best known for defense, winning 16 gold gloves, which is given for superior performance in fielding. Wow. But former baseball commissioner Faye Vincent said what Robinson meant to the game went far beyond his own play. The uh, rules of the game and the honor of the game are very important to baseball, and he was a man of great honor. He was a civilized human being. He was very much a leader on his team. And make no mistake, Robinson was a star, a Hall of Famer, 18-time All-Star, and the MVP remembered for lifting Baltimore over Cincinnati in the 1970 World Series. Great day in the morning. What a play. There was a homer in Game 1 of the 1966 World Series that helped give his adopted hometown its first Major League crown and made him the star of a universal newsreel. Brooks Robinson is the very next batter to face Drysdale, and he puts one into the stands in almost the same spot. We should talk like those newsreel announcers, I think. That would be a good way to do this story. The Orioles last night noted how he played with a childlike spirit. Here's Robinson himself at his induction into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1983. Throughout my career, I was committed to the goodness of this game. In fact, I feel my love for the game of baseball overrode everything else. And here's baseball commissioner Faye Vincent. There was a great humility about Brooks. He never took himself too seriously. You know, he knew he was a very good player, um, but he never acted like a big shot. For StoryCorps in 2009, one of his fans, Bob Panara, recalled meeting Robinson when Panara was a kid and watching him use American Sign Language to ask whether he was deaf. I said, hey, you know sign language? Where did you learn? He said, well, I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas, only blocks from the school for the deaf. So I used to play with the deaf kids. He became my idol after that. He was the idol of many people. A few years ago, Forbes magazine noted that decades after his retirement, people in Baltimore still named their kids Brooks. 
Norman Rockwell even painted him in 1971, signing an autograph for a kid. The painting was called, Gee, Thanks, Brooks. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Fort Point Arts Community's Open Studios event, featuring free performances by Boston Lyric Opera on Saturday, October 14th at Midway Studios. Visit fortpointarts.org for more information. I'm Lisa Mullins. Local news is more relevant than ever before. Whether we're covering climate change or income inequality or health care, these issues affect us right where we live. WBUR's local journalism needs a strong future, but that's far from certain. Giving monthly is the key to keeping WBUR strong. Help get us to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. This is Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi back with you as part of our fall fundraiser. And you just heard my evening counterpart, Lisa Mullins. We're like ships in the night. We just never <laughs> cross paths. And yes, I have too many metaphors going on there. But together, we are the bookends of your day, bringing you the news you need to know and the sense of community that helps you feel connected every day. That's really important to us. We know it's important to you, so we're asking you to give now maybe $10, $20, or $30 a month. <clears throat> Sorry. And when we say a month, we say that because that helps us plan for the future. That steady support, that monthly support helps us know what we can bring you in the future, and we want to bring it to you. We just started this fall fundraiser. We're starting off strong with a dollar-for-dollar match. That comes from generous and devoted WBUR listeners who want you to be part of the community that makes the programs you depend on possible. We need you to call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org and give what you can. With me in the studio this morning is another important part of your day, Radio Boston's Tiziana Deering. Good morning, Tiziana. Good morning. So great to be here. Unabashed fan of local news, mm-hmm. obviously with Radio Boston. You know, local news is how we rebuild trust and connection. It's how we understand our community. It's how we put one foot in front of the other every day. You and Lisa are how I put one foot in front of the other every day. And, you know, nobody's guaranteed certainty in life, but we all do everything we can to have as much of it as Mm -hmm. possible. Uh, And that's why we are asking to create 2,500 new monthly contributors. And that's why some members of our Murrow Society have come together and said, hey, you, please become one of those new monthly contributors right now, and we will match your monthly dollar dollar for dollar. Or if you're a monthly contributor, add a dollar or two and we'll match that right now at 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org because every inch of certainty for this station means we can plan for what's next, what's coming ahead, and bring it to you with the highest quality and integrity possible. It's Leila Faldil from NPR's Morning Edition. The demonization of fact-based journalism is one of democracy's biggest threats. This aversion to truth has taken hold as the number of local newsrooms has dwindled, leaving reams of disinformation to fill the void. In public radio, we have a responsibility to counteract disinformation. This station is an oasis amid all the noise and fiction. Having a reporter at the school board meeting at City Hall, that is our resistance to the undermining of a free press. 
We resist by being there, by providing platforms for people to see themselves reflected and to see difference. We resist by building bridges and by holding people to account. We do it thanks to you. You give us the tools we need to fight attacks on truth by donating to this station. Here's how. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Think about your monthly budget. Visualize that number in your head. And now think about it being doubled. That's what's on the table right now. It's like magic, but it has a very real impact. With this dollar-for-dollar match, your money will go twice as far, and that will help us bring you more of the news you turn to every morning. Like this morning, news of the potential deal to avert a a federal government shutdown. Also, news of how a possible federal government shutdown might impact Massachusetts. That's stuff you need to know. So the number is 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Get some great gifts or there's also a sweepstakes that Tiziana is going to tell you about. Yes, in addition to the dollar for dollar match on any monthly contribution you make, we have this amazing sweepstakes courtesy of CBT Travel. Five days, four nights in London, you and a friend, to recreate a trip that senior correspondent Deborah Becker and a former colleague at WBUR made exploring the restaurants of Yotam Adelenghi, uh, a food pioneer. You can only go to these restaurants in London. Get in on that. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Congress has a few days left to prevent a partial shutdown of the federal government. The Senate is moving forward with a bill to fund the government through mid-November. It includes more money for Ukraine. The House is working on several bills that Speaker Kevin McCarthy says would fund most of the government. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre was asked about House Republicans remaining divided about a budget. It is up to them to fix whatever chaos is going on right now with these extreme Republicans in the House. It is up for them to fix. She was speaking aboard Air Force One. Former President Donald Trump is skipping tonight's Republican presidential primary debate in California. Instead, Trump will travel to Michigan to speak to members of the United Auto Workers at a non-union venue outside Detroit. President Biden was in suburban Detroit yesterday telling striking union workers on the picket lines to stick with it as they seek higher pay from Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis. Leaders of the Writers Guild of America have voted to end the nearly five-month strike by its members. The WGA says writers will be allowed to return to work while they vote on the three-year contract with Hollywood film and TV studios. The union says the agreement includes higher minimum pay as well as concessions on the use of artificial intelligence. 
This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A $1 billion tax relief deal is expected to win approval in the state, Senate, and House this week. The package includes credits for renters, caregivers, and low-income families. It also includes reforms aimed at companies, which some say will make the state better for business. WBUR's Zinninger and Wameka reports. The package cuts the tax rate on short-term capital gains from 12 percent to 8.5 percent. It also simplifies how the state calculates corporate taxes, so it relies solely on a company's sales. Jim Rooney of the Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce says the bill is the most significant tax cut package in decades. And it signals, I think, a pivotal moment that Massachusetts is understanding that it's a competitive environment for both talent and for businesses in which other cities and other states are working hard to attract our people and our entrepreneurs. Among other provisions, the package would also more than double the state's child independent tax credit. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. Nurses at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Methuen are on strike. Unionized nurses say they're walking out for better pay and benefits. Members say nurses working for Dana-Farber in Boston receive better compensation. A Dana-Farber representative says the union rejected a new contract after nine months of bargaining. They add that the nurses will not be allowed back on the job until Friday. State lottery profits are reaching record highs. Massachusetts lottery officials say games brought in nearly $1.2 billion in the last fiscal year. That's a record and about $18 million more than the state had originally estimated. It's 734. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. The Red Sox lost to the Tampa Bay Rays 9-7 last night at Fenway. The teams will play again tonight in the last home game of the season for Boston. Highs in the mid-60s today under mostly sunny skies. Tonight we'll have lows around 50 and it'll be partly cloudy. Tomorrow highs in the upper 60s and mostly sunny. Right now it's 48 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Helping nonprofit organizations, including religious organizations, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to making it easy for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The U.S. Supreme Court is saying, again, that Alabama needs a new congressional map. Again and again and again, Alabama legislators have drawn congressional districts. Again and again and again, critics have said the maps violate the Voting Rights Act by diluting the power of black voters. Courts, including the Supreme Court, have rejected the state's maps. But Alabama lawmakers keep going. And now the Supreme Court has rejected the state a second time. NPR's Hansi Lo Wong has been tracking all of this. Hansi, good morning. Good morning, Steve. The Supreme Court had already told them that they were wrong. That's right. This was the state of Alabama asking for a redo after it lost at the country's highest court 
and was ordered to draw a new congressional map that is in line with the Voting Rights Act. And to do that, federal courts have said there should be two districts where black Alabamians have a realistic chance of electing their preferred candidate. But Alabama has been trying and trying to get away with just one opportunity district for black voters. And now the Supreme Court order basically says, no, Alabama, you still need a new map with two opportunity districts. It's remarkable to see some of the quotes from the various court rulings on this. The courts have found Alabama ran last year's election with a, quote, unlawful map, running an entire election with an unlawful map. Did we get any more details about what Alabama is wrong about from this ruling? No, but... We should keep in mind that the court put out a majority opinion back in June for this case, and that upheld the court's past rulings on what's known as Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, So what do voting rights experts then make of this finding? Well, like you said, we should keep in mind that Alabama has been prolonging this legal fight for more than a year now, and that means that last year's midterm elections in Alabama were held using a map that the courts have ruled was not fair to all voters. And, you know, one way to look at what Alabama has been doing is it's the latest example of a state testing the waters with the conservative supermajority on the Supreme Court right Mm. now. How open is this court to reinterpreting the Voting Rights Act? And for this Alabama case about Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, uh, not so much, apparently. And this likely final word from the Supreme Court actually could help resolve a couple of other cases in southern states. Oh, are there other states where congressional maps were at issue in similar ways? Yes, I'm tracking cases in Georgia and in Louisiana where there are very similar active voting rights lawsuits. They're also focused on claims that the way Republican-controlled state legislatures drew the lines weakened the power of black voters. And judges in those cases already found that those claims are likely to be proven out based on the Supreme Court's past rulings on the Voting Rights Act. And how many voting rights experts are interpreting the Supreme Court's latest order is that the underlying message is those judges are on the right track. And it's very likely then for next year's elections there will be more congressional voting districts in the South where black voters have realistic opportunity of getting their preferred candidate into office. Could that change the partisan balance in Congress? Yes, because of how racially polarized voting is in those states, those districts are likely to elect Democrats to the U.S. House and additional Democratic pickups during next year's elections could help Democrats win back control of the House. Hansi, thanks so much. You're very welcome, Steve. That's NPR's Hansi Lowa. Fentanyl is killing kids at an alarming rate. The Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, says that in 2021, fentanyl was involved in 84% of all overdose deaths among teenagers. There is an antidote. It's a nasal spray called naloxone. It's also known as Narcan. And school districts around the country are now rushing to stock it. NPR's Sequoia Carrillo reports. This spring at Johnny L. Cochran Middle School in Los Angeles, Three students suffered from a suspected overdose in one day. School personnel quickly sprayed naloxone up the noses of the middle schoolers, and they revived. Never would I have imagined that students would today have contact with a substance where even just a small bit of a pill could kill you. That's Alberto Carvalho, superintendent of the country's second largest school district, Los Angeles Unified. He's a big proponent of addressing the fentanyl crisis head-on and was an early adopter of naloxone in schools. Last school year, LAUSD administered the spray 31 times. 
that's 31 times that we possibly saved a life, right? Where maybe the administration of Narcan a minute later uh, could have resulted in a fatality that is preventable, that is absolutely preventable through the power of education. Last school year was the first year they stocked it in all schools. The move came in response to a 15-year-old student dying from an overdose in a school bathroom. And it's not just LAUSD that's needing naloxone regularly. Across the country, in Prince George's County, Maryland, Richard Moody, supervisor for the Office of Student Engagement and School Support, says if he had to guess how many times they used it last year... I'm going to say 45. 45. Yeah. That's more than once a week. What I keep repeating over in my mind is that if, if this all got down to there was one overdose a year, that's one overdose too many. A national movement to get naloxone in schools is gaining momentum. An NPR analysis found that last school year, only five of the 20 largest school districts in the country stocked naloxone in all of their schools. This year, 11 of 20 do. Three more told NPR that getting the medicine in every school is a priority by the end of this school year. One of those districts is Chicago. While on the district side, they're still working on it, some students have taken up the torch of spreading awareness. My name is Patricia Cruz, and I'm a junior at Lane Tech. Patricia was part of a class where students made infographics and videos about how their peers could help with the fentanyl crisis. So come walk with me. I'll show you what to do. Okay. We're here at the Independence Park Public Library in Chicago. If you in live some in large Chicago, cities like Chicago and Philadelphia, anyone can walk into a public library and request naloxone. Where you have Narcan available, totally for free, no questions asked. You can take one, and then you can leave. But even though students can get naloxone for free, many districts won't let them carry it in school. Training to dispense the drug is another challenge schools face. It's not as simple as just saying, hey, we're going to have naloxone in our school tomorrow. Experts say naloxone is easy to administer and use and very low risk. But Kate King, a nurse in Columbus, Ohio, and the president of the National Association of School Nurses, says many school administrators are still wrestling with rules and procedures they believe are necessary before stocking the medication. Who's going to give it? How are they going to give it? Where is it going to be kept? Answering these questions quickly, many educators say, could mean the difference between life and death. Sequoia Carrillo, NPR News. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. A mix of sun and clouds today. Temperatures will be in the mid-60s. The clouds hang around tonight as it falls to around 50. Upper 60s tomorrow under mostly clear skies. Right now it's 48 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College. Open house October 4th for careers in school psychology, leadership, and mental health. Scholarships available, williamjames.edu. And Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. 
Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. I'm Deepa Fernandez. The crisis in journalism has been chronicled many times over. The pandemic and current economic conditions hasten the decline. Most of the focus has been on newspapers, but even WBUR's own future is far from assured. That's why we need more members and member dollars. Giving $10 or $20 every month is the single best thing you can do to keep our journalism going. Give monthly at WBUR.org. And thank you. You're listening to the Fall Fundraiser on WBUR, and as you just heard there from Deepa, this is a really challenging environment for media. We need your help to keep this work going. Think about what we bring you every day, high-quality news that is factual in the necessary context and weighed against our journalism ethics. That level of quality is really important to me and everyone who works here. It's why we work here, but it takes money to make it happen and to make sure it keeps happening in the future. Right now, you have the opportunity to double your impact for WBUR. Generous listeners want you to step up, so much so they will match whatever you give right now, dollar for dollar. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org right now to get in on that match. Tiziana Deering, host of Radio Boston, take it away. I will. You know, I was just looking, thinking about the restaurants on the block here. So a $10 a month gift is a couple of pieces of the fancy pizza. It's two medium cups of coffee. It's mm-hmm. one burrito bowl. How could that possibly make such a difference for us? Being one of the 2,500 people who says, yes, I will do that every month now for WBUR. And we're but, probably healthier. Right. <laughs> Although the burrito bowl's not bad. Yeah, that's true. But here's On Point host Meghna Chakrabarty explaining that actually you'd be surprised it can make a huge difference. I love climbing the mountains of New England, especially partial to the New Hampshire ones. So, you know, when, when you get to the top of Mount Monadnock or any New England mountain. And you see the the cairns there, the little pile of rocks that people have added every time someone summits. And you put your your rock on the cairn. It always reminds me of my absolute favorite Disney movie of all time. Technically Pixar, but Disney movie. Moana. Really love that film. And there's a scene in Moana where she goes to the top of the mountain on her island with her father. And there's a cairn there at the top of the island, and it's every every chief uh, that her people have ever had. And he says, when you, he says to Moana, when you lay your stone on top of this island, you raise us all higher. And to me, in a sense, that's what great journalism does, and that's what contributions to great journalism do. Your contribution is like that stone added to the edifice of public service journalism. And when you add that stone, it lifts us all higher. It makes our journalism better. And so that's why I think it matters. It matters to give um, because you make a, it makes a big difference to what we can do uh, and how we can serve people. Um, and it lifts us all, our entire community. I love that bit of musing from Magna, not just because Moana chokes me up in many parts of Moana chokes me up, but also because it really gets at why listeners are so important to WBUR and why we need you to do your part and join with other listeners who are offering to double your contribution right now. That is a rare offer. Be responsible for this 
free, high-quality, reliable service that your community depends on. Start your morning off right by taking action and having double the impact. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org and take advantage of this match to double your impact. That doesn't happen very often, and you can have the satisfaction of doing everything you can for WBUR. We're asking you, I'm asking you, to be one of the people to say yes. I'll become a new monthly giver to WBUR. And by being a new monthly giver, I'll have another listener double my gift. Mm-hmm. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. What a beautiful way to start this Wednesday. Thanks. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Well, it's not often that we get to witness the beginnings of a scientific revolution in real time, but that's exactly what may be playing out in the world of human reproduction. And today, we get an unusual peek inside that race. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein joins us now. So, Rob, I'm all ears. What's this potential scientific revolution? It's called in vitro gametogenesis, or IVG. Think IVF 2.0. But instead of mixing natural sperm and eggs in a test tube, IVG would make what some scientists call artificial sperm and eggs in the lab from any cell in anyone's body. Okay, I'm trying to imagine this, Rob. Um, my, My skin cell is what you're saying. That could become an egg or a sperm? That's right. That's right. Sperm and eggs that could create an embryo in the lab, just like IVF, but IVG, it would render the biological clock irrelevant, helping anyone of any age have a genetically related baby. Same for anyone single, gay, trans. Wow, that sounds amazing, and I can imagine controversial. And we'll definitely talk about that. But first, let's meet the two scientists who essentially launched this whole field and are still on the leading edge of making IVG a reality. They're both Japanese. They live and work in Japan. And Rob, you went to go meet them? That's right. They both agreed to let me come visit them in their lab. So I flew to Tokyo. Well, we just landed. It was a pretty easy flight. And then hopped a bullet train west to Osaka. And that's where I find... Professor Katsuhiko Hayashi at Osaka University. Hi, how are you? <laughs> I'm okay. Sorry, we're a little late, got a little lost. <laughs> yeah, it's a very complicated building. <laughs> Hayashi is famous in scientific circles because he was the first one to make IVG look like it could really work. He leads me into his lab to show me how. Hayashi pulls a dish from an incubator and slides it under a microscope. First, Hayashi figured out how to turn skin cells from mice into mouse eggs. He motions for me to take a look. Oh, wow. Each of those glowing blue balls is an egg. Yeah, yeah, yes. There's so many of them. It's in one experiment, basically, we can make 4,000 eggs. 4,000 eggs. These are like little egg factories. Each one of these is a little egg kind factory. Of, kind of egg factory in the mice. Then Hayashi went even further. He used the artificial mouse eggs to breed healthy baby mice. 
triggering an international race to do the same thing for people. Applying this kind of technology to the human is really important. I'm really, really excited about that. But the big question is, how soon could this happen? A California biotech startup called Conception says, really soon. I visited Conception a few weeks earlier, and they claim they'll have human IVG eggs ready to try to fertilize within a year. Hayashi is skeptical. It's impossible, to my opinion. One year, right? I don't think so. That said, Hayashi says he and his colleagues are at least as close as the Americans. But to find out how close, I should visit Professor Mitnori Saitu at the University of Kyoto. When I get there, it's hot and steamy. Let's come in. Can you take off your shoes and change your slippers? Slippers. Oh, okay. Sure, sure, sure. Hello? Professor Saitu? Yes, this is Michinori Saito. Oh, so nice to meet you. Rob Stein from NPR. Uh-huh. <laughs> Saito's the first, and so far only, scientist to prove he could turn human cells into very primitive human eggs. Saito takes me into his lab to show me the next step. And that's the uh, culture room. That's the uh, most kind of important place. Most important place because this is where Saito's trying to coax his primitive human eggs into maturity. For example, you know, we are trying to understand signals that instruct a cell's maturation. To tell the cells you should start to become an egg. Yeah, exactly. I asked Saitu, so what does he think of the U.S. biotech's claim about trying to fertilize an egg within a year? (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Amazing like you believe it or amazing like you're skeptical? I, I, I don't really know. You know, some sort of incredible or how to say a scientific breakthrough may happen but let's see <laughs> have you gotten that far we are working on that have you had any success we are working on that <laughs> that's not yet published so i cannot tell the japanese scientists warn it would take years to show artificial embryos aren't carrying dangerous genetic mutations but even if ivg safe the japanese scientists are cautious for another reason there are so many ethical problems. So uh, this is a thing that we have to really think about. Okay, so Rob, now we're getting into the ethical concerns. Uh, What are some of those concerns? Well, there's a number of them. For example, IVG could not only help really anyone have genetically related babies, IVG could make traditional baby making antiquated for everyone. Wait, wait, wait. Everyone? Yeah. IVG clinics could start mass producing artificial embryos so parents could use only those with the healthiest genes and possibly the traits they want. Wow. That just sounds already really controversial, especially in the United States. What about Japan? Yeah, it's definitely there too. And to talk about that, I meet with Misao Fujita. She's a bioethicist. Professor, Kyoto University. She says the Japanese share U.S. queasiness about mass-producing human embryos. Then that means maybe exploitation of embryos, commercialization of reproduction, and also you could manipulate genetic informations. That means you can create designer baby. It reminds me of playing God. Yeah. But Japan would even be uncomfortable about creating babies outside of traditional families. If you can create artificial embryos, then that means maybe a single person can create his or her own baby. So who is mother and father? So that means social confusion. 
Hmm, social confusion. Wow, okay, interesting. Um, Rob, what do scientists have to say about all this? So the Japanese scientists say they're uncomfortable with some of the implications too. Here's Professor Saito again. Science always have good aspects and also have, I'm not sure it's bad, but negative impact like uh, atomic bombs or any technological development. If you use it in a wise manner, it's always good, but everything can be used in a bad way. Even so, eh? Saitu and Hayashi hope the Japanese government will support something the U.S. government would never support today. The creation of artificial embryos to help them win the race to make IVG a reality. Wow, this has been riveting, Rob. Thanks uh, very much. That's NPR health correspondent Rob Stein reporting from Japan. Rob, thanks. You bet. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. WBUR supporters include AE Events, design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. You are back with the fall fundraiser on WBUR. We're asking you to think about everything you get from us for free, on air, online, in the form of newsletters and podcasts. All of that can only continue with your support. And when you call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org right now, your contribution will be matched dollar for dollar. That means if you give $10, it'll become 20. If you give 20, it'll become 40 and so forth. It's easy math, I know, but it's important math because it helps us know what we have to work with, especially when you give on a monthly basis, so we can plan for the future. So the number again is 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Double your impact. Tiziana Deering of Radio Boston is here with me in the studio this morning, and you should see how excited she is <laughs> about this match. When she gets worked up, oh, yeah, the finger's coming out. She's I know. starting to point. And you're like, no, she is not. But actually, I no, am. She is. I love our fundraisers because I believe so deeply in what we do here at WBR. People are like, really? You love the fun? I do, actually. And I love getting to join you here on Morning Edition because normally I'm listening in pajamas and slippers. Yeah, we and love now having I get you. to be in. Thank you. And the, the donors, the listeners who have said we will match your monthly gift, love it too. They really do understand how important it is for us to meet this goal of 2,500 new monthly donors. We don't need big money we're asking for monthly money. Now, listen, if you can give big money, mwah, yes, we would like that too, please. But we're targeting monthly donors right now because it makes all the difference in the world in our ability to plan, our ability to look forward. We've got an election year coming yep. up. We've got potentially a government shutdown next week. This ability to plan makes all the difference in the world. When you become a monthly giver right now, you let us plan and you get your dollars matched. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. I don't know how many radio stations keep you in the driveway so that you can listen to the end of whatever the story is because it's fascinating and because you're really learning something from it. And WBUR definitely does that. You feel like you've actually grasped the meaning behind what you're listening to and why something's happening. They sort of unpack an issue and they get people from industry, from policy, from the research world to speak on whatever the topic is. And so you get a well-rounded look at whatever the issue is. WBUR allows for 
the gray area, what it would look like if there wasn't a right answer, or if there are many right answers. For all the reasons you listen, give monthly at WBUR.org. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org and double your impact and get in on the match. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society. Experience Handel's timeless tale of triumph over adversity, Israel and Egypt, next weekend, handelandhaydn.org. And Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. New Jersey Democratic Senator Robert Menendez is scheduled to appear in federal court this morning. From member station WNYC, Nancy Solomon reports he faces charges of bribery and corruption. The New Jersey senator is expected to plead not guilty, along with his wife and three businessmen. He's charged with helping a New Jersey halal meat business corner the market in Egypt by supporting U.S. arms sales to the Egyptian government. Prosecutors allege they found more than $500,000 in cash, much of it stuffed into envelopes and hidden in the Menendez home. The senator says he's innocent and that the cash was money he took out of the bank to have on hand in an emergency. Governor Phil Murphy and Senator Cory Booker have called for Menendez to step down. For NPR News, I'm Nancy Solomon in Maplewood, New Jersey. The House has voted to pass a procedural vote that opens debate on some long-term spending bills for the federal government. But that debate won't come fast enough to stop a looming government shutdown late Saturday night. The Senate didn't wait. Senators overwhelmingly passed a short-term spending bill, but House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says he'll put forward his own bill in a couple of days. Israelis will soon be able to travel to the United States without getting a visa. This comes after years of negotiation and Israeli steps to make it easier for Palestinian Americans to travel to Israel. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. In recent months, the U.S. has been monitoring Israeli pledges to treat all U.S. citizens equally, including Palestinians and other Arab Americans who have faced restrictions and harassment at Israeli borders. U.S. officials point out that all Americans can now go through Ben-Gurion Airport to enter Israel or to travel to Israeli-occupied Palestinian territories. And the U.S. will continue to monitor this even as Israel officially joins the visa waiver program. The U.S is now updating its immigration procedures for Israelis and expect that by November 30th, Israelis will be able to come to the U.S. without a visa. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. The Writers Guild of America strike against Hollywood studios is over. Union members must still vote on whether to ratify their new contract, but the union leadership voted to approve the deal. Members are allowed to return to work. However, the actors' union, SAG-AFTRA, is still on strike against the Hollywood studios. Some members joined a picket line outside Netflix offices in Los Angeles. We're ready. The strike is not over. SAG-AFTRA, we are still here. We are on strike. We have yet to receive a contract from the AFPTP. A note, SAG-AFTRA represents most of NPR's journalists but are governed under a different contract. 
This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. State leaders are bracing for the impact of a potential federal government shutdown. WBUR's Josie Gorino has more on the implications it could have for Massachusetts. Tens of thousands of federal employees working in Massachusetts could go without paychecks or face furloughs. And programs could also be affected. Sharon Scott Chandler is president of Action for Boston Community Development, which oversees the Head Start program in Massachusetts. She says many of the families they serve also rely on federally funded food benefits. The government shuts down. It's not just about opening our doors. It's also about how do we serve and help families who kind of have the rug pulled out under them. Chandler says Head Start in New England can weather a government shutdown for about a month. Beyond that, they would need to look to the state for help. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. The T is now moving at just three miles per hour along sections of the new Green Line extension. That section of the line just opened last December. T officials tell the Boston Globe recent inspections revealed tracks along several sections of the line are too close together. That could cause trains to derail when traveling at full speeds. September is National Suicide Prevention Month, and many of the factors that lead to suicide are related to where people work. State data show that in Massachusetts, out of all occupations, construction workers have the highest rate of suicide. More from WBUR's Samantha Kutsia. The study finds that unpredictable schedules, varying job benefits, and health and safety risks are all factors that impact the suicide rate for construction workers. Emily Sparrow-Fine is the head of the Massachusetts Occupational Health Surveillance Program, which did the study. She says an important part of lowering the suicide rate is providing resources to employees and employers. In the construction industry, we often see sort of a, a macho attitude around you know, mental health, and that can hinder some of these efforts. And so trying to destigmatize talking about mental health. If you or someone you know is struggling, you can reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Samantha Kutsia. It's 806. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brigham and Women's Hospital. For expert research-based obstetric and gynecologic care, turn to Brigham and Women's, specialists in women's health with the latest innovative treatments for complex conditions. U.S. News ranks Brigham and Women's number one for obstetric and gynecologic care in the country. BrighamandWomens.org. Make it three losses in a row for the Red Sox. They lost to the Tampa Bay Rays 9-7 to last night at Fenway Park. The teams will meet again tonight in the last home game of the year for the Sox. In exhibition hockey last night, the Bruins lost to the Buffalo Sabres 4-1. to The Bees' next game is Friday at home against the Flyers. Mostly sunny today and in the mid-60s. Partly cloudy overnight, it'll be near 50. Mostly sunny again tomorrow and in the upper 60s. Right now it's 49 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. WBUR supporters include the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. Hi, it's Robin Young. WBUR needs more members and member dollars to fuel our journalism. So we're looking for 2,500 listeners to become monthly contributors to give WBUR a strong future. Join us. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. Good morning. This is the Fall Fundraiser on WBUR. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shinoy. You are listening because you care about what's going on in the world. 
And there's a lot. It's tough to keep up with what you need to know, even just about the region or the city. You want to know about maybe the upcoming city council elections, efforts to fight the opioid crisis, our strange shelter system helping homeless families. All of that takes money to bring you. It's important news. It needs to be up to date and delivered to you every single day. But it needs support from you, from listeners, because listeners are our most our largest share of funding. So call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. As you heard there from Robin, we are trying for, Tiziana, what is it? 2,500 new monthly contributors to that WBUR. Is what, thank you. That is what we need to do in order to bring in the funding that we need to bring you the news that we need We need to bring you every day. <laughs> and um, especially when you do that right now, there is a dollar-for-dollar dollar match from listeners, other listeners who feel like it's really important for you to step up and give so much so that they will match whatever you give dollar for dollar. So on this Wednesday morning, all you have to do is call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org to have the sense of satisfaction of doing everything you can for WBUR. So to tell you more, as you just heard her, it's Tiziana Deering of Radio Radio Boston, who I love to have in the studio. Thank you. And I'm very happy to be here, but we got to hold up a second. I am a Red Sox fan. You just <laughs> told us, sadly, about yes. three losses in a row. Has not been a great season. No. It costs, on average, several hundred dollars to go to a Red Sox game. Mm-hmm. Now, with the new game clock, maybe you're there three hours, right? We're asking for $10 a month in order to get everything you get from WBUR every day. So what, $120 for the whole year for everything that you get from WBUR. Mm -hmm. And we're not losing three in a row here. And if you do it right now, other listeners who are as passionate about quality news and information as you are will dollar for dollar match that new monthly gift. Here are some of those listeners and why they know it's so important. A story facing every community, every family across the country, really, is the ongoing addiction crisis. And it's been a focus of WBUR's coverage for years, especially in the area of Boston, where the crisis is most visible, near the intersection of Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard, or so-called Mass and Cass. We've talked with many of the hundreds of people who are living or have lived on the streets or frequented that area where drug dealing and drug use is I've basically been disabled for a while and I've been trying to get housing and this is kind of the only only option that I have at the moment. We've also heard various plans from city and state officials to deal with the problem. This is really about getting to root causes, changing the dynamic, and part of the dynamic exists because everything is concentrated in one part of the city. We've talked with families trying to find loved ones at Mass and Cass, with police and sheriffs about arrests. And it's an issue we'll keep following because we know you want to know about the latest proposals and how local, state, and federal resources are being used to address addiction, mental health, and homelessness. So we'll keep talking, especially with those directly affected and with healthcare providers trying to help and policymakers grappling with trying to prevent even more more lives lost to really what is an immense crisis of our time. 
And you got to let me jump back in. Of course, I thought we were going to go to some listener voices there. And this, Deb Becker, following one of the greatest crises of our time here, all the more reason versus three hours at a Red Sox game mm-hmm. to do $10 a month and get it matched at one 800 9289 or WBUR.org, Rupa. And you've been hearing us say it, but just to say it again, generous listeners have stepped up to match whatever you give right now, dollar for dollar. Whatever you can give, we will be very grateful for, especially if you can give monthly. Tack on a few dollars and take advantage of this match. We will get that extra money every month. It will be so impactful for us. So please go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Get in on the match. Show your support for WBUR. WBUR has reliable support all year long, thanks to our monthly sustaining members. If you're a WBUR sustainer and you received a new credit card recently, please take a moment to update your information to keep WBUR strong. Make your update at WBUR.org update or call 1-800-909-9287. And thanks for supporting WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Science Festival. What happens when fashion designers and scientists work together? Find out this Saturday when Boston Fashion Week teams up with Cambridge Science Festival to bring you the future of fashion, workshops, demonstrations, and a breathtaking runway experience. CambridgeScienceFestival.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. This evening, seven Republican presidential hopefuls are expected to assemble for a second debate, this one at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Southern California. An eighth candidate will not be there, and that would be the frontrunner. Instead, former President Donald Trump is scheduled to hold a campaign rally in a Detroit suburb. And this takes place against the backdrop of the auto worker strike, although it's been widely reported he's going to a non-union shop. And this comes a day after a New York judge found him, his two eldest sons, and his business associates liable for fraud in a civil suit. And all this invites a question for the seven Republicans who will be on the debate stage tonight. What do you do when the front runner is ignoring all of you? Mary Anna Mancuso is a Republican political strategist, and she is with us now to give us her thoughts on this. Good morning. Good morning, Michelle. How are you? I'm great. So let me just uh, establish that you are a free agent. You're not advising any of the candidates on the debate stage, right? That is correct. Okay. So Trump's absence, what's the opportunity and what's the risk for those who will be there? Well, I think that it's really interesting to point out here that it is not peculiar that we're having this debate. This is actually kind of the debate that we often see as we head into the primary season of any election for president. But what is interesting is that the front runner is not on stage, but what's even more peculiar is that most of the candidates are actually refusing to attack him. And that tells us everything that we need to know. And, you know, at the end of the day, no one on that stage genuinely believes that they have a real shot to unseat Trump. Because really, what are they gonna do? If they have a spectacular night, they're going to, what, go from six points to 12. Trump is still leading commandingly, and that really is a problem. And I think that what's important here is we have to step back and understand something. 
this isn't a traditional debate. We've mm. never had a situation in American history where the frontrunner is completely disregarding the contest of ideas that are supposed to be happening in his political party. Right. So we're not seeing that right now. So, this is an addition. And we can explain why as we get into this. So, so look, if you were advising, if you were advising one of the candidates, what might you tell them about how to approach this moment tonight? Not the, the bigger issue, but tonight. Right. Well, so if I'm advising one of the candidates, I'm telling them that they are running for a vice presidential slot or a cabinet position and they should act like it. But if they really want to break away, what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to attack the front runner. However, the issue is, is that this is not a political party of ideas. It's a political party that is based on a loyalty oath, which is to Donald Trump. And if they don't feel if they don't give loyalty, hmm. then, you know, that's it. And they don't want to upset dear leader on the stage. And that's kind of the biggest problem that we're seeing right now. So so is there any way that you see that the dynamic could change in this primary race? As I mentioned earlier, this is just a day after a New York judge said that he and his sons and his associates committed fraud and very strongly were the terms doesn't seem to have made any difference. Is there any way you see that the dynamic could change? You know, I, I would love to see the dynamic change, but in order to do that, we have to understand that this political party isn't acting like a political party and that in order to do this, people have to be able to say that there are problems with the fact that the front runner is, you know, currently facing 91 felony accounts. This is a bigger sign that we should be worried about, that we have an individual who is so dangerous and is winning commandingly in the race. So before we let you go, is there any way in which you think that the former president might be overestimating his advantage? I mean, there is this axiom about defining your opponent before they define you. He, you see he's trying on social media to sort of malign some of, some of these candidates, but does his do you see any opportunity for his opponents to redefine him? It is really hard to redefine him. And really what this is, is that this is going to be about stylistic differences for each of the candidates. And that is the definition of an audition that we're seeing happening tonight. Hmm. That is Republican political strategist Mary Anna Mancuso. Mary Anna, thank you so much for talking with us and sharing these insights. Thanks for having me. Some other news this morning. The United States is giving Israelis something they've sought for decades, travel to the U.S. without needing a visa. This is part of a larger deal. Israel has given something back. It has ended bans and restrictions against Palestinian Americans and Arab Americans. This is all a little complicated, and it affects different people differently depending on what passport they have, what papers they have. But fortunately, we have NPR's Daniel Estrin on the line who can help us explain it all. Hey there, Daniel. Hey, Steve. How big a deal is this? Well, it's a pretty big deal for Israelis who, you know, they won't need to wait months for visas anymore. Starting November 30th, they will just get to travel to the U.S. for work and tourism. And this is something Israel has wanted for years. I mean, basically, they've told the U.S., listen, we're your, we're, we're your close allies. Why can't we be like, you know, France and Germany and dozens of other countries in your visa-free program? Hmm. But for many years, Israel did not qualify. And that had a lot to do with Israel's security paradigm and philosophy. And some of this really hasn't gotten a lot of attention. For instance, 
U.S. officials actually found holes in Israel's border security, which, you know, probably sounds surprising given Israel's well-known security measures. But under this new deal, um, the U.S. has asked Israel to adopt passenger screening protocols that were established after 9-11. And Israel also under this deal has agreed to tighten the way it hands out passports to new immigrants. And there was a fear that in the U.S. that, you know, to try to prevent an influx of Russians who have moved to Israel since the war in Ukraine. So all that is part of this deal. But really the key U.S. demand here was reciprocity. If Israelis can travel freely to America, then Israel should treat all Americans equally when they want to travel to Israel. And that that goes for people like Iranian Americans, Lebanese Americans, and especially Palestinian Americans. What does it mean for that last group? Well, it means that if you have residency papers in the West Bank and Gaza, you're Palestinian but also American, you're no longer barred from Israel's main airport, and that makes travel so much easier for them. Um, If you are Palestinian-American living in the West Bank, you can just show up at an Israeli checkpoint and enter Israel as a tourist. Mm. Um, And ever since Israel changed the rules on this this summer, tens of thousands of Palestinian-Americans have done things that, you know, people like you and I, if you visit Israel uh, and at the West Bank, you you take this for granted. You can visit the birthplace of Jesus in the West Bank. You can then go to Israel, visit the Sea of Galilee. Um, and I've heard some really colorful stories about Palestinian Americans experiencing this. Uh, listen to Mohammed Manasra. I drove through every single checkpoint between the West Bank and Israel I could within this week. Like I would literally drive through the checkpoint, make a U-turn, come back. And it just feels like every time I go through a checkpoint, it's like I won. It's like I won, he says. So this is like a, a, a huge change for freedom of movement for Palestinian Americans. Okay, so you use the word reciprocity. Americans want their citizens to be treated the same as Israeli citizens. And right. you also raise the concept of equality. Whoever the American citizen is, whatever background, they needed to, needed to be treated the same, including Palestinian Americans. But is this full equality? Is everything sorted out? Well, you know, many say no. There are still some unequal ways Israel treats Palestinian Americans. Uh, Some Democratic senators have expressed concerns. There's an Arab American rights group trying to get an injunction against Israel joining this new program. Uh, And the U.S. acknowledges, listen, big picture, this doesn't address the Israeli discrimination against the vast majority of Palestinians who don't have U.S. citizenship. What does it say that President Biden's administration has made this agreement with Israel at the same time that the Biden administration is criticizing Israel's right-wing government for its efforts to change the rules of the government in Israel? I think it says a lot. I think it says that, you know, there's something much bigger here uh, in Biden's sights, and that's a a mega deal, a diplomatic deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia. And that would require Israel to make even bigger concessions to the Palestinians than than this, you know, change to to travel. So this might be a sweetener for for Israel. We live in interesting times, but fortunately, (laughs) Daniel Estrin is here to help explain it. Daniel, thank you so much. You are welcome. Some other news now. The Hollywood writer's strike is finally over, almost five months after it began. NPR's Mendeley Del Barco reports that writers still have to ratify their new contract with the studios, but now can get back to work. Screenwriters have been penciled down since May, waiting for major Hollywood studios to make a deal with their union. Yesterday, leaders of the Writers Guild of America approved it, and they declared an end to the strike just after midnight in Los Angeles. The deal is exceptional in that it is something that will protect writers, not just now, but 
in the future. David Goodman is president of the WGA West. Over the weekend, he and the union's negotiating team met with the top executives of Disney, Netflix, NBC, Universal, and Warner Brothers Discovery to hammer out the new three-year contract. Ellen Stutzman is the WGA's chief negotiator. There's a bunch of things the companies told us they would never do. Minimum staff size is one of them, preserving the writer's room. That was a key game. Residuals in success in streaming, another thing they said they would never do. They couldn't figure out success. They did it here. Really key to writers, some real AI protections. The studios agreed to use writers, not material generated by artificial intelligence, for screenplays and teleplays. And for the first time, the streaming companies promised to be transparent about their viewership data. Goodman told NPR the studios finally made all these groundbreaking changes because the WGA and the actors' union sag after it demanded them. Two major unions were out on strike. The business was shut down and there was no end in sight. That's what convinced the heads of those companies to sit down at the table and try to make this deal. And once they did, they realized everything we were asking for was not only reasonable, but affordable. Goodman and Stutzman say they're so confident writers will seal the deal by ratifying the contract in October that they're allowing them to resume writing now. But the saga's not over yet. SAG-AFTRA remains on strike until the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers makes a deal with them. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solutions simulator, climateinteractive.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. And William James College, open house October 4th, School Psychology, Counseling, ABA, Organizational Psychology, and more. WilliamJames.edu. This is WBUR's Fall Fundraiser. You're with me, Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering. We're here to remind you about everything you get from WBUR every day. All you have to do is turn to 90.9 or go to the WBUR app or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR or maybe read one of our many newsletters. All of that makes it easy to stay up to date on the news every day. And staying up to date on the news helps you stay connected to your neighbors, your city, your state, your country in a time when so many people are struggling with loneliness and to stay connected. So supporting the news you hear and depend on every morning makes you a responsible and effective member of your community. Our goal this fundraiser is to bring in 2,500 monthly sustainers because when people give monthly, it helps us know what we're working with so we can plan to bring you the news you depend on. And right now, when you give, there's a match on the table so your gift will be doubled. That is a rare opportunity. It means your contribution of 
For example, $12 a month will become $24 a month for WBUR, not just this month, but every month for a year, if you start that monthly gift right now. The match ends at 10, so we need you to act soon. Just call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Here's Tiziana. You know, our goal uh, for this fundraiser is 2,500 new monthly givers. That's you. That's you saying, I will give monthly because I understand the incredible stories that WBUR can tell if I do just a little bit every month and get it matched. Here's just one example of the storytelling that we can give when you become one of those 2,500 new monthly givers. Hi, I'm Chloe Axelson, the senior editor of Cognoscenti, WBUR's ideas and opinion page. One of my very favorite COG essays is about the power of admitting our own ignorance. Leah Hager Cohen wrote the piece. She's an author and a college writing instructor. Her essay for us became the basis of a whole book about the courage to say, I don't know. Here's a little bit of her essay. The condition of being human involves an awful lot of not knowing. The more we're able to acknowledge this, the more unabashedly we may inhabit our own skins. Leah writes that our culture often places value on judging and gatekeeping, but the freedom to say, I don't know, honors vulnerability. It chews away the tendency many of us have to pretend to know more than we do because we're fearful of being found out or excluded. It's the kind of self-protection that can make you feel more disconnected and lonely. We don't know everything at WBUR, we don't purport to, but in our work to seek truth, facts, and understanding, we value the chance to be a trusted member of your community. Listeners are the largest share of our funding, and this is when we come to you to ask for that funding, especially right now when there's a rare dollar-for-dollar match on the table. If you already give, thank you so much. We are so grateful. If you can, maybe tack on a few dollars to your monthly gift and get in on the match. That will double. That will increase your impact for WBUR for a year. If you can be one of the 2,500 new monthly subscribers we're trying to bring in on this fundraiser, this is a great time to do it, to have your impact doubled for a year. But the match is only available until 10. That's coming up in an hour and a half. So that's how much time you have to act. And to show your support for WBUR, you know you you depend on us every day to know what you need to know is going on in the world, to feel connected to your community, to feel like you are a responsible member of your society. So this is what you can do to make that feeling amplified for you and for us. Call one 800 909 or go to WBUR.org. Okay, and let's have a little fun here. We have a sweepstakes courtesy of CBT Travel going on for the next three days. This is a great time to get in on it. It is a five-day, four-night trip for two to London where you will have a chance to go to four of the seven London-based restaurants of renowned chef Yodem Adelenghi. He's an eat columnist for the New York Times Magazine. He writes a weekly food column for the Guardian's Feast Magazine, among foodies. He is legend for the complexity and the joy with which he brings vegetable dishes and spices and seasonings to life in a way that is 
unparalleled. Uh, our CEO, Margaret Lowe, is a huge fan. WBUR senior correspondent, Deb Becker, actually went on a trip with a former colleague of ours just to eat at his restaurant. So you can eat at four of them, Ropi, Novi, Adelengi, I'm going to get this right, Spitalfields, and Adelengi Islington. Try now, 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. Join us. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. From Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. NASA astronaut Frank Rubio and two Russian cosmonauts are back on Earth. Their Soyuz capsule landed in a remote area of Kazakhstan today, having returned from the International Space Station. Rubio spent a year in space, setting a record for the longest U.S. spaceflight. His stay aboard the ISS was extended after space junk damaged the original return capsule, forcing the three to wait for a replacement vehicle to get home. Congress has a few days left to prevent a partial shutdown of the federal government. Work continues in the House and Senate to get funding approved before the end of the week. President Biden is urging members of the United Auto Workers to stick with it as they continue their strike against Ford, General Motors and Stellantis. NPR's Osma Khalid says the president traveled to Michigan yesterday where he joined a UAW picket line in suburban Detroit. He put on a black UAW baseball cap before he stood up in front of the crowd. He only spoke for a few minutes, but his central message was that the auto companies are doing well, that they are doing far better than they were during the Great Recession in 2008, when these workers sacrificed a lot to keep the companies afloat. And since the companies, he said, are doing better financially, the workers ought to be doing a lot better, too. This is day 13 of the UAW strike against Detroit's big three automakers. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. State lawmakers are expected to approve a nearly $1 billion tax relief proposal this week. The plan includes credits for renters, caregivers, and low-income families. Doug Howgate is the president of the Massachusetts Taxpayers Foundation. He says the bill sends an important message to people in Massachusetts and across the country. Massachusetts was taking seriously this idea that we need to use our tax code as a way to mitigate costs for residents and also work on our competitiveness. So I think from that standpoint, it absolutely sends that message. The package cuts the tax rate on short-term capital gains from 12 percent to 8.5 percent. It also simplifies how the state calculates corporate taxes, so it relies solely on a company's sales. 
State Attorney General Andrea Campbell wants to create a new fund to pay for green projects in the state. The Environmental Justice Trust would help pay for projects like habitat restorations, community gardens, and air quality monitoring in areas that face a greater threat from climate change. Those are often lower-income neighborhoods and neighborhoods of color. Environmental settlements reached with the Attorney General's office would fund the trust. State lawmakers plan to file legislation today to establish the fund. Nurses at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in the Merrimack Valley are on strike. They're asking for increased wages, benefits, and retirement funds that were frozen during the pandemic. Erin Darkangelo is an oncology nurse navigator at the Methuen facility. She says the nurses there are paid nearly half of what their colleagues at Dana-Farber in Boston make. Patients come here and they get great care and They just think everything is the same, whether they get their care in Boston or here. And it is. The care is the same. It's just that the pay and the benefits that the nurses are getting is not the same. Dana-Farber representatives describe the proposed contract as very competitive and say it includes salary and benefits increases. Striking nurses will remain off the job until Friday. It's 835. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, an immersive Arctic world exploration with technology as your guide. Tickets at mos.org. The Red Sox lost to the Tampa Bay Rays 9-7 last night at Fenway. They'll play again tonight in the last home game of the season for the Sox. Highs in the mid-60s today under mostly sunny skies. Tonight we'll have lows around 50 and it'll be partly cloudy. Tomorrow highs in the upper 60s and mostly sunny. Right now it's 51 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Helping nonprofit organizations, including religious organizations, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We have a glimpse now of a crisis on the edge of Azerbaijan. It's an oil-rich country on the shores of the Caspian Sea. And for many years, a separatist group held part of its territory. They were ethnic Armenians who proclaimed their own republic. Finally, in recent weeks, Azerbaijan's government retook that territory. Many ethnic Armenians have fled to the next country over, which is Armenia. Some American lawmakers went to that border recently, and one of them was Gary Peters of Michigan. Senator, welcome. Well, good to be with you this morning. I guess we should just remember all politics is local. This seems far away, but I know your state is a big Armenian-American community, so people are concerned. And you went over to have a look. What did you see and hear? Well, I did go over to uh, get a look and uh, to see what was happening. Uh, And just before I got there, the Azerbaijan uh, military attacked uh, with a military operation. And the situation got worse. Uh, They were, prior to that, uh, being subjected to a blockade for several months a dire humanitarian situation for the Armenians there without food and medical supplies, a pretty desperate situation that got worse. Can you give us just a picture of the the landscape? Is it mountainous? Is it remote, for example? What's it like to be there? 
Well, it is. Uh, it is very mountainous, uh, particularly in the, the border region. I was at the Lenchen Corridor, which is a, a road that goes from Armenia into Nagorno-Karabakh. And it's just a one, one way through a mountain pass, which was blockaded by Azerbaijan uh, government forces, as well as uh, Russian uh, peacekeepers. When you mention that one road going into the separatist region, I guess that one road is the one road that people are having to flee to Armenia if that's their chosen course. Is that right? That is uh, that is correct. Uh, when I was there, it was uh, still blocked. Uh, people were basically trapped there. No one was uh, allowed out. So it was uh, a lonely road, uh, but we knew that uh, folks in Nagar-Karabakh were in a pretty desperate situation. And we now have a report. It's hard to get details, but it's said that dozens of people have been killed in that separatist region or former separatist region, killed in an explosion at a fuel depot. We don't know what's happened, but that may suggest the desperate situation that many people are in, doesn't it? Oh, it, it, it definitely does. In fact, uh, fuel was not there. It's going to be tough for people to even put fuel in a car, if they have one, uh, to uh, to uh, get out. And that's the one thing that is really critically important right now, is to have international observers uh, in Nagorno-Karabakh. I, I want to figure out who has leverage, who has power. I'm thinking Azerbaijan, where the separatist region is, what is or was, is a former Soviet republic, so we can presume that Russia has influence there. Does the United States have a lot of influence or connections there? Well, Russia is uh, on the ground. Uh, there are bases uh, in Armenia as well. We went by a couple of uh, those bases. Russian uh, peacekeepers are there. They do have a security agreement with uh, Armenia, but from all accounts, uh, the Russians uh, basically stayed in their garrison, did not intervene in any way uh, when uh, Azerbaijan uh, attacked uh, the, the region. Uh, their role uh, is really uncertain right now. Does the United States have a particular role to play? I think the United States uh, has a, a role to play. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, that's why I was there. Certainly the Biden administration has sent officials as well to uh, provide uh, humanitarian aid uh, right now for folks who are streaming uh, out of that region. Uh, but certainly we need to continue to play a role to make sure that Armenians uh, in the region can have their human rights protected, uh, can uh, live with dignity, and can have a measure of security. And does the United States have any instruments of instruments of power? Obviously not troops there, but does the United States have cards to play? Well, it's uh, diplomatic. Uh, we need to use our diplomatic uh, efforts uh, to make sure that uh, people in that region uh, have some level of security and know that their rights are protected. Uh, certainly, uh, the Armenians are concerned that uh, Azerbaijani government's engaged in ethnic cleansing and genocide. If that's the case, it certainly has a special meaning to the Armenians, given uh, the history that they have. Senator Gary Peters of Michigan, thank you very much for your insights. Thank you. Amazon is facing a federal monopoly lawsuit. The Federal Trade Commission and 17 states have all sued the tech giant, accusing it of harming small businesses and shoppers. As always, we'll note that Amazon is among NPR's financial supporters and pays to distribute some NPR content, and we cover it like any other company. NPR's Alina Solyuk is with us now to tell us more. She has a monopoly on this story. Sorry, I had to Here do it. Here I am. All right. So, okay, Alina, how big of a deal is this lawsuit? It's a very big deal. Uh, it could be up there with historic monopoly cases. Think Microsoft back in the 90s. The FTC has been working on this case for years. It started under President Trump, and it's now led by Chair Lena Khan, who became famous as a legal scholar, arguing that Amazon and other tech giants are acting like modern-day railroad tycoons and should be restrained appropriately. 
Can you just give us some of the specifics of the case against Amazon? Yes. So the focus is on the fraught relationship that Amazon has with other sellers on the platform. Most of the stuff that you buy on Amazon now actually comes from other sellers, about 60%. And the FTC argues that Amazon abuses its power over these sellers, kind of trapping them and costing them more and more in various fees, knowing that they can't afford to leave. Have you had the opportunity to speak to some Amazon sellers? I mean, what do they say about this? You know, I mentioned fraught uh, relationship. Selling on Amazon is lucrative. So sellers will talk about how they can reach shoppers now in ways that they couldn't even imagine 20 years ago. But also, Amazon is still their competitor. Um, it can see what they sell, what's most profitable. It could sweep in, sell at a loss, squeeze out them and other rivals, and then start raising prices. Yesterday, a few sellers were brought together by an anti-monopoly think tank, and they described all of this. And one of them was Nicholas Parks from Alabama. He sells hot sauces and spices. You can't compete head on in any relevant way in the grocery category. So we have to find items that Amazon doesn't sell. And if they pick up one of the items that we sell, then that effectively means we just can't sell that item any longer. He also mentioned that when you tally all the fees, about half of what he makes on the platform goes back to Amazon. And let's look at this from the consumer standpoint. How does Uh this affect shoppers? Well, so the case argues that it could mean that Perhaps you're not seeing best quality results at the top of your search, or you're paying more because sellers are paying more. And even more directly, the lawsuit argues that Amazon actually punishes sellers that try to charge lower prices elsewhere on the Internet, meaning you might see higher prices caused by Amazon even if you don't shop on Amazon. And what does Amazon have to say about this? Amazon Payne's FTC is radically veering from its mission to protect consumers and argues that if the government wins, the result could be higher prices, lower deliveries, fewer options for shoppers and businesses. So what's the goal here? What do the FTC and the 17 states want the court to do? The FTC wants the court to make Amazon stop acting anti-competitively. I want to note that at the moment, they're not asking the court to break up Amazon. But this case is going to play out over probably many years. And so a lot can change in the years of litigation ahead. That is NPR's Alina Selyuk. Alina, thank you so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stepping Stone. For more than 30 years, working to build a future where all students have access to a college education. Stepping Stone's evidence-based model supports Boston students from historically marginalized communities starting in fifth grade all the way through college graduation. Learn how you can get involved at SteppingStone.org. A mix of sun and clouds today. Temperatures will be in the mid-60s. The clouds hang around tonight as it falls to around 50. Upper 60s tomorrow under mostly clear skies. Right now, it's 52 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Fall Experience, featuring four dynamic ballets on stage October 5th to the 15th. Tickets at BostonBallet.org and Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at Zevin.com. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. In a world where often only those who can afford a subscription are the ones with access to the most credible, high-quality news sources, WBUR is available to anyone, anywhere, anytime, at no cost. But we can't take our future for granted. 
Giving monthly is the key to keeping WBUR strong. So help us get to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. You're listening to the fall fundraiser on WBUR. You listen to us every morning, so you know what's going on in the world. Maybe you're getting ready to go to work or to take the kids to school. Before you leave, you probably have the same checklist I do, keys, wallet, phone. Focus in on the wallet part of it for a sec. Let's say you have a $20 bill in there. As you're looking at it, it becomes two $20 bills. Oh, I like that. I know, right? That essentially is what will happen when you give to WBUR in the next hour and 14 minutes, 15 minutes or so. Other listeners who want you to give have stepped up to say that if you give, they'll match it dollar for dollar for a year. As you heard Megna say right there, we're trying to bring in 2,500 new monthly sustainers, this fundraiser. And if you become one of them right now, your impact will be doubled. If you already give, thank you. Thank you very much. Maybe call or go online to add a few dollars to your monthly gift if you have a minute. That addition will be doubled for a year. That's more money in WB Wars wallet that we will use to bring you the news you depend on every morning. But the match is only available until 10, so we need you to act soon. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And in case you are wondering, I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shinoy, and I'm super lucky this morning to be joined by Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering. Rupa, did you say sun? Did you say there would be some sun? There will be. Oh, thank yes. God. Yes, just a few clouds. Yeah, no, I'm so happy that there will be some sun, although, and I'm going to do the cheesy pivot here, you <laughs> are our sunshine <laughs> as <laughs> listeners. I didn't see it coming. That monthly gift creates the sun that we need to keep going. It's like our solar power. Honestly, the monthly gift is like our solar power. So we're asking you to become one of those 2,500 new monthly givers so that public radio can keep stepping up for you. My name's Scott Detrow, and I host All Things Considered on the weekends. I really enjoy the challenge of considering all things. You know, you can be on the line with a senator, then you're shifting gears and you're talking to a musician, you know. For the bulk of my my career as a member station reporter, I was a statehouse reporter. So many things that affect people's lives are happening in those buildings. In just about every state, there's a public radio reporter there. It is a very challenging time to be a reporter. The business models that made journalism work for decades have gone up in smoke. And people increasingly just tune in to news sources that tell them what they want to hear. Public radio stations have really kind of stepped up in the middle of all of this to tell you the facts, to give you the information you need to make your own decisions. The whole NPR network is stronger with your support. Give to this station today, and thanks. 10 o'clock will be here faster than you think. You'll be listening to the BBC News Hour. You'll get all caught up in the international news, and suddenly the match will be over. So act now. We need 2,500 of you who aren't already monthly subscribers to become one, especially now when your impact will be doubled for a year. If you're already a monthly subscriber and add a few dollars, that's doubled for a year. It's a great deal for you because you want to know your money is going as far as it possibly can. And it's an amazing deal for WBUR. We get double the support and we get it from you, which is so very meaningful for us. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the Salem Witch Trials, Restoring Justice, on view now. Learn more at PEM.org. And Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice. 
advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. European soccer is a global business. European teams attract investors from the United States, from China, from the Middle East. And in recent years, super wealthy owners have tilted the balance of competition in favor of a handful of elite clubs that can drop hundreds of millions of dollars or euros pursuing the world's best players. This reminds me of debate in pro baseball against richer and less wealthy teams from smaller markets. There is now a move for the European Union to halt the flood of foreign investment. NPR's H.J. Meyer has more. It's Manchester City's time! Manchester City, Newcastle United, Paris Saint-Germain, all have something in common. And it's not what you think. It's golf state ownership with deep pockets. That's brought a radical change to the European soccer landscape, now dominated by these new super teams, says sports business professor Simon Chadwick. What we essentially have now is a hyper-industrialized, a hyper-commercialized sport. And while this trend of foreign ownership began with American and Russian billionaires in the early 2000s, it's the injection of dollars from the UAE, Qatar and the Saudis that's put it into overdrive. We're now, I think, reaching a tipping point because Europeans are starting to realize that if you want a healthy soccer industry, there does need to be some regulatory interventions. The European Union last year passed a new law to review and correct market distortions triggered by subsidies from non-EU countries. And so this summer, a small Belgian soccer club and Spain's La Liga filed separate complaints aiming to bar investments from those wealthy Gulf states. It's to test whether this new EU law might actually extend to European soccer. A commission spokesperson confirmed to NPR that they are assessing those filings. But Sibel Yilmaz, competition law expert with Covington and Burling in Brussels, cautions that soccer is just not high on the list for EU intervention. I think there are a lot of other areas that they feel are still kind of more priority for this than non-European investment in football clubs. Yilmaz says that new regulation is really intended to prevent outside tampering in critical areas like national security and economic stability. That said, if the European Commission decides to take up the issue, it won't be the first time a European body is intervening in soccer. The 1995 Bosman ruling by the European Court of Justice established free agency in European soccer. And, Chadwick cautions, as in the Bosman case, it could take years before a ruling is issued. HJMI, NPR News. This is WBOR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. And this is the start of our fall fundraiser when we ask for the listener support that keeps this station going. Our CEO, Margaret Lowe, is here so you can hear directly from her. Good morning. Good morning, Rupa. I always love being here with you. We always love having you. So we offer people a lot here at WBUR, including, most recently, the new Field Guide to Boston. Tell us about that. Yes, happily. As you know so well, we launched the Field Guide earlier this month. It was a full year in the making. Our reporters, our editors created guides to all the major Boston neighborhoods, from Back Bay to Beacon Hill, Roslindale, Roxbury, 20 neighborhoods in all. And the guide is so rich in detail, the demographics of each neighborhood, what locals say, neighborhood haunts, hidden gems. We produced restaurant guides curated by local chefs, notes on nightlife, 
arts and culture, even the best way to make friends if you're new to Boston. It's a wonderful adventure. I grew up here, and it's a reminder, at least for me, of how much Boston there is still to discover. And this is actually just the beginning. Over the next months and years, we're going to expand the guide well beyond Boston. And that is exciting. The Field Guide is really an incredible resource. If you haven't checked it out already, it's at wbur.org slash field guide. Why was this something we decided to do? I guess I would capture it this way. We talk about how BUR is a news organization, but we also know that we are so much more than that, too. Our mission is to produce high-quality journalism and also enriching experiences that deepen people's understanding, their sense of connection, their sense of community. And community is such an important piece of the field guide and, and, and actually of who we are. We want to expand the circle So more people discover BUR and get to experience every dimension of what we do and all the ways we serve the community. And on top of that, you and I, we all live here. And there's so much that ties us together, whether it's the sports teams to root for or the restaurants we're dying to try. We wanted with the Field Guide to create a sense of place and a sense of belonging. And we want people to turn to WBUR to find out what's going on in their city, in the region, and in the country. And We also want people to know that they can turn to us when they want to know more about the place that we all call home. And when it comes to our journalism, we've been on a bit of a roll lately. Which stories have you been bragging about? I brag all the time about so many stories, and it's always hard to choose one thing to highlight because we produce so much great journalism every day. But I'll point to an investigation that we published last week with our partners at ProPublica, As you know, there's a huge housing crisis in Massachusetts. The state's spending more than $45 million a month to house people temporarily at hotels, shelters, college dorms, a military base. It's a story our health reporter Gabriela Emanuel has been covering for months and really leading on. It's so serious that last month Governor Healy declared a state of emergency to deal with the wave of families needing help from the state's shelter system. And that's putting even more strain on the state's acute housing crisis. The numbers in our investigation tell the story. There are more than 180,000 people waiting for state-subsidized housing. And our investigative team found out that all the while, more than 2,000 state-subsidized units are sitting empty. And many of those units have been empty for months and even years. So it's a story of government waste and mismanagement and also a story of profound human hardship. WBUR reporter Todd Wallach helped make this government failure real by introducing us to a Worcester woman named Deb Libby, who's being treated for cancer, makes a little more than minimum wage working at the garden center at Lowe's, and is stuck on a wait list for state-subsidized housing. She says she was surprised to hear about all the empty apartments across the state. Yeah, it makes me very frustrated. I have a hard time sleeping. I, I don't know what I'm going to do, and, and that's not good for my health. Libby says she wishes she could talk to the people in charge. Find me something. I mean, I'm one person. I don't have kids. I don't have a dog. I don't smoke. I don't care what floor I'm on. I mean, I'm pretty easy fit. Libby is running out of time. She has to leave her Worcester apartment by the end of the month. You can really hear the urgency and intimacy that makes radio so special right there. You can hear the anxiety in her voice. And that makes it more than just a number story or a story about government failure. That's right. It suddenly becomes a very human story. And here's what's so meaningful about reporting like this. The day after our final investigative story aired, Massachusetts housing officials announced that they're launching a 90-day push 
to reduce the number of vacancies in state public housing by the end of the year. So that means the reporting we do has real impact and, and real power, and it's a crucial part of our job to shine a light where there's none and to hold government officials accountable. And when we just do that with the hope of making our city, our region, and our country a better place, and we will continue to follow up on this reporting. It's important to remind people that WBUR will always be a public good available to anyone, anywhere, anytime, and at no cost. Why is that so crucial right now? It's crucial because we now live in a world where only those who can afford a subscription have access to many of the most credible, high-quality news sources, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, our friends at the Boston Globe. They all have paywalls, and they must in order to support the quality journalism, but it further divides the haves and have-nots. At the same time, WBUR and NPR will always be free. We are a public service which is why we count on people who can to contribute so we can continue to be a trusted source for anyone and everyone who lives here, whether they can afford to donate or not. And it's a continual goal, I know, to ensure our long-term financial security. How do we actually make that happen? Well, one of the ways it happens, um, and the best thing that listeners can do, is actually become a sustaining member, meaning you give every month automatically, and it makes life a lot easier, really, because you don't have to consider each and every time whether or how much you want to give, and it creates more economic certainty for WBUR, knowing that we have your enduring support. And I hope we do, because we will always be here for you, our listeners, and we hope that you will continue to be here for us. Margaret Lowe is the CEO of WBUR. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rupa. WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. We're about to head into the BBC News Hour and just want to tell you quickly that if you don't already give, we really need you to step up. If you already give, thank you so much. If you can, please give a few dollars more in the next hour. And we're asking you that because there is a match on the table right now put there by other listeners who already support WBUR and want you to join them. They will double whatever you give for a year, but that's only available until 10. So call one 800 909 9287 or go to WBUR.org. Uh, Tiziana Deering from Radio Boston here with Rupa. Bridge the divide Margaret was talking about. Close the information gap with quality news and information. Do it by 10 o'clock. Become a monthly giver for WBUR at one 800 9287 or WBUR.org. Help us hit that goal of 2,500 new monthly givers to provide the quality news and information you count on for you, for your community, for your neighborhood, and by 10 a.m. so that every dollar of that monthly gift for an entire year becomes $2. 10 becomes 20, 100 becomes $200 a month. Again, 1-800-909-9287 or Rupa? WBUR.org. And thank you so much. Have a wonderful Wednesday. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Science Festival. The Great Science Carnival returns with hundreds of STEM-themed activities for the whole family this Saturday, Kendall Square, cambridgesciencefestival.org. And Bridgewater State University, hosting Nobel Peace Prize laureate Lech Walesa on campus October 3rd, 
bridgew.edu slash events. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.